So just a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, we started a new journey for the summer. We started a journey through the Gospel of Luke, and it's got several pieces to it. And so I'm going to catch up to speed just a little bit, and then we're going to kind of dive into it this morning. And part of the reason that we're doing the study the way we are is that we really are encouraging everyone in our church to get in the Word. Our goal for you this summer is for you to spend time in the Gospel of Luke meeting with Jesus. Now, I realize that not everybody has a deep understanding or a background of quiet times and prayer times, and so we found a study that we want everyone to go through that will walk you through the process of having quiet times, spending time in prayer, developing a personal relationship with Christ. And we've been talking about it for several weeks. We gave the books out two weeks ago. It's not too late to get involved, but we're challenging everybody to go through this book, this Four Sevens book that walks through the gospel of Luke this summer. There's some more in the back. If you haven't done it, it's not too late. We're only the second or third week really into our, our study. But this study has got a couple of components. One, it's got a component that we're challenging you to do individually. We want you to get involved with the Word, right? Our church has a very high picture when it comes to the authority of Scripture. We do not believe that the Bible is a series of guidelines or promises or just little things that we can hang on to. We believe it's the very Word of God. And having an encounter with God's Word is having an encounter with Him. And we believe, as we looked at in the book of James, that we're called to not just hear it, but to obey it. That it should shape everything that we are. And then if we're, we're not living God's Word, essentially, James tells us that we're living a lie. We deeply believe that we are called to spend daily time in God's Word, and we want you to do that. Our goal on Sunday morning um, at, in this church really is not to entertain you. It's not to give you 35 minutes that you don't feel bored. It's not to kind of trick you into coming back or not falling asleep. Our goal is simply to introduce you into God's Word so that you might des- develop a passion for God's Word and then meet with Him in that. And I promise if we do that as a community, as individuals, God will radically sort of turn our lives upside down and mess everything up. Because God's word is just that radical. And so we're challenging you to get involved. So each week what I'm going to do is I'm going to take one of the the lessons that we're doing out of Luke and I'm just going to pull some of those verses and I'm going to teach from them. So it's not going to be an exhaustive kind of preaching through the book of Luke, but instead it's going to be a journey through some of the studies that are lifted out through here. And I'm going to use those those as we preach. So if you're you're going through this, some of those things are going to be echoed. If you're not, then you probably should. There's plenty of them left back there. We'd love for you to do that. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open the book, look book of Luke chapter 4. We're in the third week of our Luke study, um, and so there's two studies per week. All you got to do is do them at home, two studies per week. It's not complicated at all. It's a really great way to just kind of get yourself into spending some time with the Lord. But we're, we're in the, the chapter 4 of the book of Luke. Now, I won't do this every week, but for those of you that weren't here last kind of two weeks ago before we took a hiatus for Church in the Park, maybe a little quick background of the book of Luke just so you know where we're coming from, right? So Luke is one of the four Gospels, right? It's also one of the three what we call synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic just means same view. It's actually from two Greek words that mean similar or same view. So the idea is that the synoptic synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have a very similar picture from the birth to the resurrection of Jesus. Now the Gospel of John is really different. His picture is much more of the telling of the divinity side of Christ, and it's it's a kind of a different picture, but of the same story. Really cool stuff. But these are the synoptic Gospels, and Luke is one of those. And Luke was written by Luke, even though his book his name's not in the book. All scholarship sort of agrees that it was written by Luke. And Luke was educated as Greek. He was a physician by 
uh, by trade. He was a very well-educated person. He traveled with Paul all the way from his second missionary journey up into the last kind of imprisonment in Rome. He was a part of his life. He was a close and dear friend of Paul. And the book of Luke is actually part of a much bigger book called Luke-Acts. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and all scholars believe that Luke and Acts were originally one giant volume. Right? And then somewhere along the way, they were sort of divided into two books. But really, it was just one long, extended letter written by the same guy. And Luke was addressed to a singular person, a guy by the name of Theophilus, which we know really nothing about except the fact that his name means lover or friend of God. So we know that he wrote this letter to this guy, and letters in those days were circulated. So while this letter was written for Theophilus' instruction, it was meant to be circulated, and therefore it's for the instruction of all those that claim to follow Christ. So while the story tells the kind of birth and life and death and resurrection story of Christ, it is meant to encourage and instruct followers of Christ to understand the truth about Jesus and the need to go and proclaim this truth to the world. So that's sort of the background of the book of Luke. And we're going to pick up in the middle of a kind of Jesus, well actually it's really the beginning of his real earthly ministry. Last week we talked, or two weeks ago we talked about the birth of Jesus and we explored it in the context of worship. This week we're stepping into the beginning and the nature of Jesus' earthly ministry, the time where he was sort of proclaiming the coming kingdom of God. We're going to look at the beginning of that call, and we're going to do it through the lens, through the context of the word gospel. So we're going to kind of be exploring that as we go. So if you've got your Bible, let's open up to chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 14, and we'll pray and then dive in that together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the Stevensons. We thank you that they have sensed your gospel call um, to go to the nations, and they have faithfully and obediently said yes to that. Lord, we pray and, and are grateful that they've come back safely for weddings and to travel around and share their stories. And God, we're, we're grateful for their example of what it means to follow you. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would be encouraged in their time here in the States, that they would be uplifted and supported. God, that they would feel like this church and all the churches that they visit and the friends that they visit would pour into them. And that, God, they may feel renewed and refreshed before they head back onto the mission field. Lord, we pray for our time here this morning that as we open your word, you would, you would move our hearts, you would stir us. God, you would turn our understanding of things like gospel and worship upside down. Lord, that you would convict us to not be mere hearers of your word, but instead be people that live it, that do it, that it bleeds out from who we are. Take a moment in your own life and your own heart right where you sit and just ask God to um, maybe teach you something. I say this kind of each week, just ask God to teach you something new. Maybe something fresh. Just whisper that to the Lord. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, wherever. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we pray that you would move in us this morning love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. So by way of segueing into this text, I want you to understand something about the idea of the gospel. All right, the gospel, I've said this before, but the Greek word for gospel is the word euangelion, and really all that means is good news. So most of us have heard that, we know that, I've mentioned that before, but it's really important that we understand this as the context of why we exist as a church. 
to the church, this idea of gospel, of good news, is central to who we are. In fact, it's, it's really the key component of our very life together and our call into the world. And the statement that we've adopted, our mission statement, if you will, that we've adopted as a church is really simple. And that's to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one and to the city to the world. I mean, that's our statement in a nutshell. And really the very core of that is the singular purpose of taking the gospel, which to me begs the question, what is really the gospel and what is it that we're taking, right? Now, we all have really simple answers to that. And in truth, the answer is pretty simple. But with the nature and character of God, the answer is also beautifully complex. Because God, on one hand, is both simple and knowable and amazing, yet beautifully complex and uncomprehensible all at the exact same time. And the understanding of the gospel is really the same way. It is both simplistic and accessible in nature, but beautifully complex all at the same time. And it is the very core of why we exist. So when we ask the question, what is it that we're taking? What is the gospel? It's central to who we are. In essence, it's asking, who are we and why do we exist? And we're going to explore this text this morning really with that picture in mind. What is the gospel? What is it that we're taking? How does it change who we are? So let's pick up in uh, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. So Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit, and the news about him thread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth, the place where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up and read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everyone in the synagogue, everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying this to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So a lot has been kind of happening in the earthly ministry of Jesus. This is the very beginning of sort of this time period where he would spend the next three or so years walking around the countryside with this band of sort of Jewish disciples doing the incredible things that we seem to know and talk about Jesus, healing and casting out demons and feeding 5,000, all those kinds of amazing things. And word was already spreading about him. And everywhere he went, people showed up in the droves, in the masses, because they wanted to catch a glimpse of who this Jesus was. Well, it's said that he returned to the region that he was from, this area of Galilee, specifically to the town of Nazareth. And we know Nazareth as the place where he was from. He was a Nazarene, right? This is where Jesus was from. Essentially, it was his hometown. People knew him from about the time he was an infant all the way up until the time he was in his 30s. They knew this Jesus. They had watched him grow. They had watched him apprentice under his father Joseph as a carpenter. They knew him. They knew the guy that would run around the streets with his brothers and do all the things that little boys do. But yet they had heard that Jesus had been traveling around the countryside doing the unexplainable, the miraculous, these things, these things that, that no one could put a finger on. And so when people had heard this, that he was coming back, of course they wanted to hear and be a part of what he was doing. Well, it happened to be the Sabbath, and as was Jesus' practice, as we learned, he'd go to the synagogue where all the Jewish leaders, all the elders, all the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and all the important religious people would gather. And what they would do on the Sabbath is they wouldn't have an hour-long worship service like what you and I would do. 
They would go to the synagogue, they would go there and they would gather and they would read all day long from the scrolls. Now, they didn't have Bibles like we did. They had scrolls, copies of letters, of the law, things that had been handed down, and they would save them there. And it was special occasions on that day of the week when they would unroll these scrolls and they would read them together. You didn't have one that you could take home and read with your family. So when you gathered, it was important. I mean, imagine being in a place where you didn't have access to God's Word. You didn't have access to the Bible. We've been in countries like this. We've been in places like Africa where where they were hungry for the Word but couldn't even get a copy of the Bible. So when we gather together in church on Sunday, they would stay for hours as we would just read. This is kind of like what that was, the assembly, the assembly gathered people of God, hearing God's law read aloud. And they would do that for hours and hours and hours. And promise, in about 10 minutes, you're going to start getting itchy, right? Because we've been here for over an hour. They would stay for days and just listen and listen and listen. Well, the, the Sabbath was a day of particular reading. So Jesus would go there, and he would gather with them, and he would be a part of this to every town he went to, as it was his custom. Well, this day in particular, in his hometown, Jesus stands up in front of the entire assembly. And usually this was a gathering of about, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred men sitting on the ground there, kind of uh, just listening to to the scrolls being read. And Jesus stood up, and the attendant, which was the person that would go and fetch these scrolls, brought the scroll of Isaiah to him. And Jesus stands there in front of this whole crowd, and he unrolls it, and he begins to read from this place. He finds this place, and he begins to read from this place. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. As he kind of leaves the front and goes and sits down. And then he looks at everybody as they're still staring at him. He says, you know what? Today, all that has been fulfilled. I mean, I don't know. I know that we don't fully, uh, can, can't fully grasp the depth of what is taking place here. But it's incredibly powerful. I mean, the, the scroll of Isaiah, the place that Jesus read from, was the entire prophecy of the Messiah, the purpose of the Messiah and coming into the world. And all the Jewish people were waiting on this Messiah. They're waiting on this Messiah to come in and restore political power to Israel, to come riding in like a conquering hero, reestablish the line of David, to be the one that would come and establish Israel as an amazing, great nation again. And they were waiting on that. And they would hang hang on words like freeing the oppressed, prisoners, giving sight to the blind as this, this hero, this person that would come from God, much like David, and establish this nation to be great once again. And Jesus finds that place, and he reads those things, and then he goes and he sits down. And everyone is just, just silent. And then he looks at all of them and he says, you know what I just read? That's me. Now, I know it's lost on us, the power of that. But this is, it's not only groundbreaking, it's blasphemous. Because essentially Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. Everything that you have read about for years and years and years that your fathers and their fathers and their fathers had talked about the coming of the Messiah, it is complete in me. I am that. Now, as we start to think about this picture of what took place, that sort of moment where Jesus proclaims who he truly is to the world, we really begin to see this picture and this understanding of gospel, of euangelion, of good news. And I want you to see three little things wrapped up in here that I think are really powerful about the gospel. The first is this. The gospel, the good news, euangelion, is a person, right? 
It's not a message. It's not a strategy. It's not the four spiritual laws, the bridge illustration to that little Avenger cube you can buy at Mardell's. That is not the, have you ever seen those? They got the Rubik's cube for Jesus kind of deal. Twist it around, you see Jesus and you can show people. They're pretty, pretty interesting. You take a look at one. But it's not that. It's not that message. It's not a system of ideas. It's not four verses in Romans that you use to share with a non-believer. It's not a theology. It's not a political agenda. The gospel is a person. Jesus says, what you are hearing is fulfilled in me. See, a lot of times we think that the church has a message to proclaim, and somehow that message is how I articulate words. What we fail to understand is that the message is actually a person. That why we exist as a church is to proclaim a person, the person of Jesus Christ. That we don't have to trick someone or convince them into understanding all these great truths about Christianity. All we have to do is introduce them to the God that changed our lives because the gospel is a person. It's not a system. It's not a strategy. It's not a structure. It's not a message. It's not just for preachers and pastors and evangelists and missionaries. The gospel is Jesus. And he looks at this crowd of all the religious and he says, this that you have just heard is me. It's incredibly profound. And I think the church, somewhere along the way, we have misplaced the person of Jesus Christ for a systematic kind of group of of arguments or theories or theologies that we want to use to convince people that God is real. The gospel, at its very core, is the fulfillment of all that Scripture is in the singular person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul himself says, as in letter to the Corinthians, he talks about this. He says that we really exist. Our only purpose, right, is just to proclaim the resurrected Christ. That I resolved myself to know nothing while I was with you, he says, except Jesus, except to know Jesus and him crucified. But that's it. I don't come to convince you with wise or eloquent words or superior wisdom. I just come to talk about Jesus. That's why the gospel in its kind of purest forms is really simplistic in nature. Because it's singular. It's a person. So the gospel, why we exist as a church, is a person. We exist to take the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. The life-changing, radical, redemption, kind of fulfillment of prophecy, person, Jesus, to the world. That I may not need to convince you on why the earth was formed and how evolution works with this and where the dinosaurs fit into the whole thing. My whole goal is just to introduce you into Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the good news. He is what changes lives. So the first thing I want you to understand about the gospel and why we exist as a church is the gospel as a person. Evangelion, the good news, is really singular. It's Jesus. So if the gospel is a person, we see two other things here I want you to see. The second one that I want you to see, or the, the first of those two things is this, that the gospel is about hope. The gospel, Jesus in parentheses, is hope. Jesus is hope. So listen to what this Jesus sort of proclaims about himself, which is just amazing. This is what Isaiah says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. So the Messiah, the Jesus, the good news, this person that Jesus proclaims he is, has given this purpose. He's given this purpose to come and proclaim, right, victory to those who are oppressed, to free those who are oppressed, right, to give hope to the hopeless, to free prisoners, to give sight to the blind, that Jesus, the good news, exists to give hope to the hopeless. Now, when most of us think about the hopeless, we think about somebody else. We think about somebody who has lost something great, someone who's suffered tragedy, someone who's down on their luck, and we see words like prisoner, we see words like blind, 
we see words like hopeless, oppressed, and we think that means someone else. Because I'm not those things. I'm not oppressed, right? My freedoms aren't, aren't held in check. I'm not blind. I, I'm not some of those things. I'm not a prisoner physically. And while a lot of that is true, what Jesus is standing here proclaiming is not the physical realities of those things. He's not saying that the Messiah, that the, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the giver of life is coming to only give life to those p- people that face those physical things, physical imprisonment, physical or, or physiological blindness, right? That's not what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to desperate spiritual, spiritual conditions of humanity. You and I are absolutely and totally hopeless. I talk about this all the time in Scripture. We are hopeless. The sin in our life, right, our separation from God renders us hopeless. We are dead in our sin. We aren't sick. We aren't dying. We are absolutely 100% dead. The Bible tells us that we are alienated from God, separated from Him, evil because of our sinful behavior. We are all 100% hopeless, period. There is nothing you can do to fix or save your own life, period. We are spiritually blind. We are imprisoned by our own sin and sinful ways. And some of you know and have felt exactly what that means. We are oppressed. And the Messiah, Jesus, has come to give us hope. To give the blind sight. And not just the physically blind, but the spiritually blind. To open your eyes to your own reality. To give you life and victory and hope. Jesus does this not the message it's the person and so if you're sitting here this morning dealing with any kind of kind of hopelessness whether it's a physical situation you're facing whether it's news that you just received whether it's the reality of your own family disaster whatever it is Jesus is the very definition of hope that he gives hope to the hopeless and then finally listen to this the gospel is freedom Listen to what it goes on to say, verse 19. That the Messiah has come to give recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that section in Isaiah is actually referring to a, a piece out of the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus in that section refers to the year of Jubilee. And it was a year that happened once, or happened once every 50 years. And during the year of Jubilee, a couple of things would happen. One, all slaves were set free. Whether they were indentured servants or, or slaves, they were completely and totally set free. All debts were canceled. And all property that had been sold was returned to its ancestral owners. Those are the things that happened during the year of Jubilee. If you were a slave, you were set free, and you were, you were called to release all your slaves to cancel debts to anyone that owed you money, or all your debts were forgiven. And if you had to sell your land, and we talked about this in the book of Ruth, if you remember this, and if you were called to sell your land, it returned to the rightful owner, whatever family member had originally had that and had to sell it for whatever reason. And it was a year of celebration. It wasn't a year of frustration. It wasn't like all those people that were owed money were like, oh man, I can't believe I'm not going to get paid. You know, it was, it was really about celebrating God's forgiveness and they gladly did it. And the year of Jubilee was set apart by feasts and celebrations and debts were canceled and slaves were free, property returned and God redeemed everything. And it happened once every 50 years. And listen to what Jesus says about himself. He says, this is why I've come, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of Jubilee of the Lord's favor. But Jesus isn't talking about something that happens once every 50 years. He's saying, my very presence 
is the picture of God's jubilee. That your debts have been forgiven. That you are no longer oppressed. That you have been completely and totally set free. You no longer are the titles that people in your life have told you you are. You are no longer are the definition of what people have told you and have expressed to you. Because God has set you free. Jesus is freedom. And the, the great struggle that I think most of us have as believers is that we believe that we've been set free, but we live like we're being held in bondage. And bondage by behavior, by sin, by struggle, a lot of times by mere words, by what people have told us, by what our parents told us we would never amount to, by what our spouse says to us, by what we saw or, or happened to us in school, just whatever it is or what our job, we live in those definitions and we're held in bondage by them by failed marriages, by failed businesses, by this, by that, whatever it is, that becomes our definition, our understanding. And even though we believe that Jesus is freedom, we live under the oppression of a lie. Jesus, the good news, the euangelion, is freedom. That knowing Christ, it's like the year of jubilee, every single waking moment, God has set us free. He's given those that have been in captive, slaves to sin, complete freedom. Those that have been oppressed by the lies of the world, have been released because Jesus becomes our identity. Our identity is in him and no longer in who we were. So if these things are true, all right, if, if this is true about the gospel, that it's a person, that the euangelion is Jesus, that he is hope and that he is freedom, and we believe that with all of our core as a church, that we believe that only having Jesus gives us both abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life in heaven. And then it challenges me to think, why does the church, and not just ours, but the church in Big C, not live with more urgency? I mean, think about it. We have the singular greatest message, that the gospel is a person, is hope, and is freedom, and that we are living in hopelessness and bondage because of sin, and yet we live with no sense of urgency to tell the world about Jesus. In fact, it takes most of us two, three, or four years to have a conversation that doesn't revolve around our children or football with someone. And at best effort, we invite them to church but very rarely have a conversation with them about anything that matters spiritually. Why? We live with urgency a lot of things in our life. We live with urgency about paying bills. We live with urgency about getting to work on time and showing up here on time and doing these things. We have a lot of urgency in our life with things. But when it comes to the gospel, we seem to have no sense of gospel urgency. This is the greatest message ever, and it's not even a message. It's a person. And we have been called as the church to demonstrate it to the world, to walk across the room in our office and have a conversation with someone meaningful, to look at our spouse and explain to them why we love them because of how God has loved us, to walk and invite our neighbors to be part of our lives because of who Jesus is and how he has set us free, to look at people that you know who are living in the same lie that you once used to believe and tell them that they can be set free. As a church, we are called to live with gospel urgency, to proclaim Jesus' hope and freedom to the world, not as a series of things to know, but as a person to encounter. Instead, we turn it into political arguments and religious agendas and all kinds of things. But in its purest form, what Jesus is proclaiming to this gathered group of religious elite is this, I am this, I am the fulfillment, I am everything that you see written here, I am hope, and I am freedom. And he drops the mic and walks and sits down in a really awesome Jesus moment, right? This becomes a call for us as a church 
This is as simple as it is, that Jesus is the gospel, and that he is hope, and that he is freedom. Wherever you're sitting this morning, whatever you're dealing with, struggling with, being held in bondage by, whatever is trapping your heart, whatever sort of hopeless situation you're in, there is an answer. And the answer is not eliminating those things. The answer is in a person, and a person that is freedom and that is hope, not because he removes the earthly struggles that we have, but because he gives them depth and meaning. Euangelion is Jesus, and he is why we exist as individuals and as a church.